If you want to turn in your Bibles, <clears throat> turn there in your notes to Psalm 110. This is a prophetic psalm. It's really amazing how much prophecy is in the Psalms. A lot of times when, you know, Psalms comes up, people think of praise. People think of, you know, at the, the expression of man's emotions and bringing, you know, at struggles before the Lord. And indeed, the Psalms uh, phenomenally address those things and teach us how to praise and give glory to God and pray and cast our cares upon him and bring our our concerns before him but the psalms as well are loaded with prophecy loaded with prophecy of of the lord's coming his first coming his second coming and so forth and the psalms are full of truths about the lord jesus christ though they were written hundreds of years and in some cases thousands of years before christ came and this psalm this morning is such a prophetic psalm written by king david and this psalm really it's all about jesus christ it's a declaration that david penned as all the scriptures are as the holy spirit moved upon him and we'll see jesus specifically saying that uh this psalm has a beautiful picture of the trinity because jesus speaks of the holy spirit moving upon david and david hearing a conversation between god the father and god the son again it's prophetic concerning the lord's first coming his second coming concerning god's judgment that's coming upon the nations it speaks upon an execution upon rebellious kings that's soon going to come in the lord's second return again it shows jesus as messiah it shows jesus is god the second person of the trinity and then as well it shows that jesus is the king of kings that he was an earthly king of Israel through the tribe of Judah we see in other scriptures, but that he is also our high priest. And listen, without this psalm here, there would be some big problems in the scripture because this psalm really connects the book of Genesis where we see a high priest of God named Melchizedek before the Levitical priesthood had been established, coming to Abraham, them really taking communion together, him being the king of righteousness as well as the king of priest or the, the the king of peace a high priest of god we see abraham tithe to him and when jesus came it was through the tribe of judah which declared his kingship but he was not a levite so he could not be a high priest according to the tribe of levi and i'll tell you that leaves a big problem because he is our high priest. He makes intercession for us. So how in the world could Jesus be king and priest? We see this morning is through the order of Melchizedek. And we'll see even this morning that through Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, it was the Levites that were still in the loins, so to speak, of Abraham. They would come through his genealogy and it shows that the priesthood of Melchizedek is a greater priesthood than even the Levites in the Old Testament. And so this psalm here really links, again, Melchizedek. It shows it's prophetic far before Jesus ever came that the Messiah would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And it shows how in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, when these things are talked about in great detail, it's not just some New Testament writers trying to fill in some gaps and, oh, let's, let's go back there to... To, to genesis and we'll just grab that but no it's prophesied in scripture it's prophesied as the holy spirit moved upon david that indeed he would be king 
as prophesied in the Old Testament through the tribe of Judah, and he would be our high priest to the order of Melchizedek. It's huge. And I just love it that God's word covers all these details. You know, when an, an enemy of the gospel, you know, when an enemy of God says, Aha, I got him. How can he be king and priest? He's only of the tribe of Judah. Yes, but he's a priest according through the order of Melchizedek. Again, God's word just weaved together so beautifully. And so, so much for us here this day, a, a, lot, of, a lot of doctrine. It's very important though. Because listen, we're going to see this morning, it's going to be reiterated, how important it is that we know who Jesus is. That we know the Jesus of the scripture. Again, it's through the Jesus of scripture that we're saved, that we're born again. And yet the Bible teaches of many false Christs that are being preached. They can't save. And the Lord even addresses this issue again with those in his day to show the importance of that we are worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. And absolutely, we're not leaving room for any false Christ to be preached in our lives and so forth. Let's read the psalm together at seven verses, and then we'll dive in this and just take it a verse at a time. We'll spend a lot in the first verse just, just really developing it more. So it says, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath he shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Notice how we start here in verse one. A Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord. Now listen, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. You compare scripture with scripture. And in some cases, we even get more in-depth commentary when Jesus or a New Testament writer goes into great detail about a verse in the Old Testament and shows how a verse was prophetically fulfilled with specifics in the New Testament, in the coming of Christ, in the birth of the church. And even in this case, in the second coming of the Lord. And we are so blessed because this verse is spoken of often in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself broke down this passage to give incredible insight and understanding of really what's being said here, really to give us greater depth to what this is about. In the book of Mark, we see Jesus bringing up this passage but he brings it up after several come to him trying to trap him in his words. We know that the religious element there in Israel was very much opposed to the Lord outside of a remnant within that group. We know that they, would really, they were really adhering to a false gospel of self-righteousness. You know, the Lord came preaching repentance and acknowledgement of sin 
Uh, the fact that their good works could not save them. That the law shows that we are sinners. The law doesn't save us, which is the best news in the world because Jesus came to save us. He fulfilled the law. He paid the penalty of our sins there on the cross as the wages of our sin is death. He died in our place. But praise God, the grave couldn't hold him because he was without sin. He resurrected from the grave. That as you guys know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this morning, if you haven't called upon the Lord, today is the day of salvation. He wants to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, and to register you in heaven so that you would have eternal life. Because these bodies will one day perish, but our souls live on forever and ever and ever. We're eternal now in that sense. I want to see as many as possible spend eternity in glory with God versus in a place of suffering forever that will come upon those that reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And so several came at the Lord trying to catch him in his words to try to find cause to take his life from him. Now listen, he would lay his life down in his timing, but it shows how jealous this group was, how envious they were, how bent they were on even muddying the waters and bringing forth not the Messiah as described in scripture, but one according to their own heart. Notice in Mark 12, 13, it says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. They actually thought they could outsmart God. They actually thought, we'll trip him up if we bring the right questions and then we'll have an aha moment. Everyone get him. And we read next that the Pharisees and the Herodians asked the Lord about taxes. Because they said, we'll get him here. We'll ask him a question about taxes. Who taxes should be paid to? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And if he says no, we'll snitch on him to the Roman government. If he says yes, then again, we can stir up the people who don't like paying taxes. Anyone like paying taxes here? And so we know the Lord in his wisdom says, give me a, a, a denarius. And he says, who's inscribed on this? And they said, well, Caesar is. And he gives that amazing answer. He says, then render unto Caesar what's Caesar's and under God, unto God what is God's. And it says they marvel at this. But instead of stopping there, here comes the next group. And now the Sadducees come up who said there was no resurrection. And they said, hey, in the law, it says that if a man passes and he hasn't had a child yet, that his brother should marry his wife so that his lineage could be carried on. And then they come up with this crazy scenario. You know, there was a woman and there were seven brothers and each one of them died and married this woman and no children ever came. And you're like, after like brother three, no one's marrying this, this you know, we got a widow maker here. And then they said in the resurrection, who, who will be your husband? And he says, listen, you're ignorant because you don't understand the scriptures. He says, first of all, in the resurrection, they'll neither marry nor give a marriage. They'll be like the angels. But then he says, haven't you read in the, the word, in, the, in, in Moses's writings uh, at the burning bush that God declares, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Even those men have passed away. They had eternal life through faith in the Messiah that was, com that, with it, that, that was to come. And the Lord corrected them. And praise God, he's the God of living. And this morning, again, we're alive in Christ Jesus. 
And then it says next in, in Mark 12, 28, then one of the scribes came and he'd heard the things that had been said. Now the difference in this scribe, it seems that his question was with some sincerity. The other two just came trying to blame God. And listen, many think that one day they'll, they'll be able to stand back and question God as God's judge. You know, you hear people, when I stand before God, you know, I'm going to say, if you're a loving God, then why this and why that and so forth? And I'm, I'm really going to put him in check and so forth. Man, listen to what the word says in Romans 9, 20. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing form saying to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? The truth is he's going to question us. He's going to say, what did you do with my son? Who did you put your faith in? And so it's important that when we go before the Lord, yes, he wants us to bring questions. He says, come and let's reason together. Let's open the word of God. And the Lord welcomes that sincerity. But the hearts of these men were hearted. But lastly, a scribe came and he did have a softened heart. And he asked, you know what? What's the first and greatest commandment? And the Lord says, listen, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And indeed, the scribe said, yes, this is true. And the Lord says, the kingdom of heaven is not far from you. The difference between the scribe and these Pharisees and these Sadducees was huge. So again, they came with these questions, and Jesus had graciously given them their turn. Aren't you glad God's patient with us? Aren't you glad he's long-suffering? And now the Lord asked them a question. And he asked us some question, not, not, not to say, oh, I'm gonna, now I'm going to get them and make them look dumb. And God can make us look dumb really easy. And at times, listen, our pride stumbles us. And he says, you look dumb now. Are you going to humble your heart and repent and do things the right way? And he's gracious to us even in that. But listen, he doesn't ask them this, this question to to. To, to try to hurt them or harm them. But he asked them this question in hopes that they would see who the Messiah is. That he was more than just a descendant of King David. That he was God Almighty who had come to make the way of salvation for them. He was concerned for their souls even when they were coming to try to trap him in the rebellion against God Almighty. Notice there in Mark 12, 35, there in your notes. It says, Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It's Psalm 110:1. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How then is how, how is he then his son? And then notice what it says next. And the common people heard him gladly. Let's be the common people, amen. Let's be the humble people. Let's not be the hard-hearted people. Again, these people with this self-righteousness, they weren't hearing the Lord because they were blinded by their pride. But the common people, the people that said, yes, I want to learn, I, I, I want to grow in the Lord, they were able to hear and able to receive. Now, again, the Lord asked them this question concerning their doctrine. 
the doctrine that they held to be true concerning the Messiah, who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And they knew he was the son of David. They absolutely knew his history. They absolutely knew the genealogy where if Judah had a king at that time, Jesus would be king of the Jews. So he asked us the question in order to open up the heart. Again, they believed Messiah would be the son of David and the Lord was through the genealogy given that the savior of the world would come through the tribe of Judah, would come through the, again, the lineage of King David and the Lord was several generations later. The problem was though, that was all that they believed. And sometimes when it comes to the person of Christ, People believe one truth about them while discounting or not believing another truth. And oftentimes that puts them in a place of believing in a false Christ, a Christ that can't save them. Because if Jesus was just a descendant of David, if he wasn't God almighty, if he didn't live a sinless life, we might as well all go home right now and have a turkey sandwich because he is not God and our, souls, our sins are not atoned for. Again, they had shunned and stumbled over the biblical teaching that the Messiah, that Jesus wasn't just the son of David, but he was also God. Remember, it was prophesied a virgin would give birth and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. That God the Father would send God the Son to atone for our sins so God the Holy Spirit could come and reside in us and our hope of the Lord's second coming and our salvation. Look, they really liked the idea of just an earthly ruler who would go and conquer Rome, who was over them, who had set up shop here on earth so that they could reign for a short time. Very short-sighted, though, in their thinking because really what they needed and what we needed was one who would, again, atone for our sins, one who would make that way for us to be right with the Father through his life and his act on the cross and his resurrection. Now again, they were isolating scriptures. They were taking certain scriptures that appealed to them about Messiah because the Lord is coming and it's declared here he's gonna execute kings and he's gonna judge nations, but he's doing that in his second coming. In his first coming, it was to make that way of salvation. Again, what's a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? He came to set up a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And yet they were guilty of ignoring those scriptures, of isolating certain scriptures. And we need to make sure that we don't do that. It's one of the reasons why we go through all the Bible in this church. We want to look at all the scriptures that never contradict one another, but always work together absolutely in unity to minister to us God's heart and mind. Notice 2 Peter 1.19. It says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, and hear this, that no prophecy of Scripture, turn page. <laughs> you got the page turn. That, hey, pe- people are following along. That's great. That no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, listen, 
you can't isolate a scripture and interpret it without the totality of scripture. Know that when you're reading the word. It's been said before, have 20-20 vision when you read the word. You read a verse. Some people, I, got, I need to hear. Open it up, boom, my verse. Read 20 verses before and 20 verses after at the minimum to get a little bit of the context. And then look at that verse within the chapter it's written, the book it's written to, in whether it's Old or New Testament, and then in the totality of Scripture. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking them back to Scripture. People get in trouble when they isolate verses, when they pull them out of context. Also, listen, if you're coming up with weird doctrines that you're the only one that has them, or with some little group that's coming up just with nonsense, there's historical truths and doctrines that are absolutely passed down to generation to generation that are solidified in God's word. And all of a sudden you're coming up just with, you know what, these own radical thoughts that contradict sound teaching century after century. Again, those that honor God's word, not the traditions of men, that's problematic as well. Now listen, again, people do it all the time with the person of Jesus. And we'll come back here to the Lord saying, you know, the Lord said to my Lord here in a second, because he's talking about his person here. They had part of it right, but they had part of it wrong. And the part they had wrong really put their eyes on a false Messiah who they wanted versus the Savior sent by God the Father. And people do it so often in the person of Jesus, and yet they still think they know the Jesus of the Bible when they don't. Some will say, yes, Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he was not God. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Yes, he is the, the, the absolute truth on moralities and everything else, but he is God Almighty. Some will say, well, he was a created being, but he's not God. That's a complete lie. We'll see in a second, he created all things. Some will say, well, he's just another way to God, but not the only way. That's very problematic. And yet that's a lie that's spreading like wildfire, even within the Christian. And listen to this, a 2021 survey of born-again Christians, self-proclaimed born-again Christians, between the ages of 18 and 39 surveyed, 60% agreed with the statement, Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus are all valid paths to God. 60%. See, this is what happens when you raise people in youth groups that are just about light shows and pizza and you never open up the word of God and teach them who Jesus is. Maybe light shows and pizza for 20 minutes and then maybe a 30, 40 minute Bible study, you know? Let's learn about who Jesus is. I think your soul's more important than a little more entertainment. Don't, don't we have enough, you know, entertainment, you know? Some say he's just all loving, but not the judge. And we even see in this text today that he is the judge. And he's so loving, he made that way for us to escape judgment. Some say he came once, but he's not coming again. Some say, well, he was a friend of sinners, and they lead off that he told sinners to repent of their sin. Others say, well, he died on the cross, but he didn't resurrect from the dead. And some say, well, now he's a God, but he wasn't always a God. 
but he became God. And guess what? You too can become a God one day. That's the Mormon Jesus, believe it or not. And listen, it was on my heart to shine light on that because it seems there's many, many, many Christians that say they adhere to the Bible that are more and more and more accepting the Mormon Jesus and they think we worship the same Jesus. It's not the case. Here's some of the attributes of the Mormon Jesus. Jesus is Lucifer's brother. Jesus is a spirit child conceived through physical means between an exalted man, the Heavenly Father, and the Virgin Mary. Jesus is not eternal and had a beginning. He's not part of the Trinity. I I won't do it for the next two. (laughs) Jesus was not always God, but earned his way to Godhead, just as we will become gods someday. The work of the Mormon Jesus was insufficient for man's salvation to be complete. One asked to believe in Joseph Smith that he came from God to restore the church. Mormon doctrine teaches that without our own righteousness, there's no forgiveness of sins. Now listen to what the word says about these false Jesuses. Again, the Lord's correcting them about the person of Jesus. That's how important it was. The Lord says, you need to get this right. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. And these things are brought forth with craftiness. It's not, hey, here's a false Jesus. It's brought forth with craftiness. So your minds may be corrupt from the simplicity that is in Christ. For you who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And sadly, many in Christendom are putting up with a false Jesus. When 60% say that Buddha and Muhammad are valid ways to God, these men didn't die for our sins. These men peddled false gospels. They're not the son of God. That's blasphemy to say such a thing. We have a sin issue and only Jesus dealt with that sin issue. And then, yes, I'll go there when the producer of The Chosen says, Christians and Mormons love the same Jesus. Is that the Jesus you love? And some people want to make light of it. They put cheap entertainment over doctrine that saves souls by the way in season three that jesus there on the chosen is quoting the book of mormon he says i am the law of moses that's from the book of mormon not from the word of god i hope we're bereans here you look into it yourself you be a berean but don't play that well i just won't look and i'll be okay that's what so many people do we're called to be defenders of the truth Only the Jesus of the Bible saves people. And that's why the Lord's correcting them here. Yes, he's the son of David, but he's the son of God. God the Father, God the Son had a conversation about his coming and what he was going to do. Again, he takes them there right to Psalm 110, where we are, to show them their false teaching about the messiah again verse 35 there in mark 12 how is it that the scribes say the christ is the son of david for david himself said by the holy spirit that the lord or jehovah said to my lord adoniah 
sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So again, he's saying David, who is the father of the Messiah practically as Jesus was the son of man, calls him Lord, acknowledges him as his authority. He says, how can that be the case if he's just the son of David? And then notice as well here, it's beautiful. We see the Trinity in action. Jesus said, David said this as the Holy Spirit moved upon him. And then he heard a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. You talk about a moment of awesomeness. In the Hebrew, that first Lord is the word Jehovah. It's a word for the Lord our God. Again, the second word is Adonai which is a word for Lord or Master, which can be applied to God or to a man. So who is it being applied to? Is this saying God the Father said to a man in authority? Well, Jesus clears it up, even though the context itself shows that this is the Lord speaking to the Lord. It's God speaking to God. But the Lord, in giving understanding of this, in the Greek, uses the word Curious for both lords. He doesn't use two separate words. And that word means su- supreme in authority. It means controller. It means God, Lord, master, or sir. But in the context, no doubt, it's a reference to God. God said to God. It's not sir said to sir. The Lord makes it clear. And this is a huge thing, and the Lord was trying to show them this. You must believe Jesus is Lord to be saved. You must believe that he is God, not Lucifer's brother. Romans ten nine. if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God or God the Father has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Look at here's another prophetic conversation. Notice Hebrews 1, 6. And when when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Look, we're only to worship God. The firstborn meaning Jesus' place of authority. That's what it means by firstborn. You are the inheritor of all things. It's a position of authority. And God the Father said to the angels, worship him. Look at, we are only to worship God. Any worship of anything other than God is idolatry. It's a declaration of the deity of Christ. And to the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, again, We get it out of this context. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father says that to the Son. You are God and your throne is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Can you believe people? Well, Jesus isn't God. The Bible declares his God cover to cover. Why is that the case? Because Satan always wants to attack the person of Jesus Christ. Because he knows if I can put a false Christ in, in my craftiness, I can lead people to hell. It's always in a crafty manner. It's always trying to slip it in unnoticed. Often tries to appeal to the flesh of men to make place for that. Whether it's, again, in the Old Testament, we want an earthly king that will conquer Rome. Versus a king that will die for our sins, or we wanted Jesus who entertains us 
even though it's the Mormon Jesus, will pretend that it's the Jesus of the Bible. He is anointing you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Again, Jesus created all things. And they will perish, but you will remain. He's eternal. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. They will be changed, but you are the same. Again, that's a declaration of deity. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your years will not fail. But to which which of the angels ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Again, we know the Lord came. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross. He rose from the grave. That's the gospel. And we're saved through faith in that Jesus and what he's done for us. Notice, read there 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 makes it very clear. And then what did he do? Again, what's it say here? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right hand. Then we know from Acts 1, he ascended into glory. And as they looked up and watched him go up, the angel said, what are you looking at? He's going to come back the same way he went up. And what did he do from there? He sat down at the right hand of the father. And that's where he is seated now. And praise God. He's not sitting there playing Xbox. He's sitting there making intercessions for us. His ministry continues. Romans eight thirty three. Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who even is even at the right hand of God, who, li- who also makes intercession for us. Notice again there, verse 1. Again, we're spending a lot of time in the first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, or God said to God, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It's God the Father telling God the Son, sit at my right hand. He went to the cross. He laid down his life. He rose from the grave. He ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He's won the war, but the battle continues for a short time. Sit at my right hand till your enemies are your footstool. See, again, a lot of enemies still run amok. The devil's running amok. The world's under his sway. So what delays is coming? We read in 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, he delays his return, not wanting any people to perish. He wants to see people get saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but notice all should come to repentance. And what's keeping them from that? Sins are forgiven. It's just the unwillingness to come to repentance. But the time's coming when again, All his enemies will be put down and his last enemy that will be put down will be death. Notice 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till his enemies are under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So in other words, when man sinned in the garden, he forfeited So much, it gave the enemy a stronghold. Through his death and resurrection, the war was won. And then the day is coming, and we'll get to it here in a second, where all this is going to be wrapped up. 
and everything's going to be handed back to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what this is declaring here. This is a declaration that expands the entirety of Scripture, really, from Genesis all the way there to the end of Revelation when you see the new heaven and the new earth. Notice verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. We know and we've seen this in great detail as we've gone through Daniel and Revelation and it comes so much up in scripture. The Lord's going to rapture his church and then at the end of the tribulation he will return out of heavenly Zion or heavenly Jerusalem with his church. He's going to trample his enemies and he's going to rule on this earth for a thousand years with a rod of iron. Don't doubt it for a second. Listen, he came and fulfilled the prophecy of his first coming. I've said it many times, there's five times more prophecies about his second coming. And you better believe he is and will fulfill every last one of them. Notice Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. The armies in heaven. That's us. Where am I in the Bible? Well, if Jesus is your Lord right there. Clothed in fine linen and white and clean followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them, notice, with a rod of iron. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion. This is this passage here. He himself treads the winepress with fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and his thigh name written, what is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. He is king and we'll see in a second, he is our priest. We know every eye will see this, every knee will bow, and we know this is the point where all Israel that's left on the earth will be saved. Again, as it says there in Romans eleven twenty six, so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of where? Zion. And he will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins all israel's too evil for god to redeem them yes we're all evil and he's going to turn away their ungodliness and take away their sins just like he did with me and you aren't you glad his grace is sufficient (laughs) verse 3 says your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth again in that day your people will be volunteers or In other words, they'll willingly serve with no reservations. Again, there'll be no sin nature that we'll have any longer. We'll want to serve them with all that we have, with every breath, and we'll do it joyfully. We know in that thousand-year reign as well, we read in Ezekiel 40 through 48, there'll be an earthly temple, and Israel will serve willingly in that temple. We read in Zechariah 14 that the other nations, those that come through the tribulation that don't take the mark of the beast, they too will voluntarily or willingly come up and serve him. And if they don't, they'll have a drought. Then the next year they'll willingly come because he's going to reign with a rod of iron. I could be this knuckleheadedness like's going on in the world today. He's going to clean stuff up. 
Truly at that point, no child will be left behind. The knowledge of the Lord will be in all of the earth. Listen, a little side note though. How about we willingly serve him today? Lord, help us where we harden our heart. Help us where we don't have a willingness because it's being overridden by selfishness or a lack of faith. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 6, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity or without a willingness for God loves a cheerful giver. It's a joy to willingly serve the Lord. Notice Judges 5, 2, Deborah declared this, when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord, that's a glorious thing. Give glory to God because God's doing a good work when people are willingly serving him. Also notice what it says here. He says, there'll be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. It's a declaration that he's all powerful, yet the day is coming when his power will be displayed and all will know it. Again, his holiness is beautiful, amen. Look at the ugliness of sin in this world. Oh, Lord, you are beautiful in your holiness and your uprightness. And when it talks about the morning dew and the youth of his strength, again, it'd be like a day where the morning dew comes and and the dew's there all day long. Or, Or the moisture's there all day long in the midst of the heat of the day. It's a declaration that his strength sustains day in and day out forever and ever and ever and ever. And so listen, if you need strength today, why not go to the one who wants to give more than a little do, he wants to pour out in your heart torrents of living water. Now, verse four, it says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he doesn't relent or he does what he says, period. In his first coming, in his second coming, and the fact Messiah would be king through the tribe of Judah, but also that he would be priest, Now, again, in Israel, to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. And it was Levi, his son Levi, that the priesthood came from. Moses and Aaron were from the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is not from that tribe. And so how can he be king and how can he be priest? That's problematic at first glance, but it's not. Because it was prophesied again. He would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now notice in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, Hebrews 9. I have the passages there for you in your notes. And there's many other places. It says that Jesus is our high priest. Notice there Romans 4.14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And it talks about the offering that he offered up. And the Old Testament, they would offer up bulls and goats for their sins, though it never took away their sin. It was really an IOU for the one who would actually pay the debt. And who was that? Jesus, our high priest. Notice what it says there in Hebrews 9, 26, starting where I have it underlined. He has appointed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Again, he laid down his life for our sins. As is appointed to men to die once, but after this, the judgment. He did it one time. It was a one and done act. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Look at it's total blasphemy to say every time we take communion, a priest does an act that makes that bread and, and juice become the literal body and blood of Jesus. And we call Jesus down from heaven to atone for our sins in a sacrament over and over and over again. It's utter blasphemy. That's the traditions of men. Christ is no longer on that cross. His death was sufficient. He died for our sins. That's why we stick to the scriptures. What's the Bible say about these things versus what men come up with to preach a false Christ? Listen, people's souls hang in the balance. It's not a small matter. If you're sitting there cringing, why do you have to preach like that? Because that's how God's word instructs us to preach. <laughs> Truth. Again, you die once, then the judgment. He died for our sins, and guess what? He was judged sin-free, and through faith in him, so will we be judged in the same manner. It's glorious. Now, who's this Melchizedek quickly here? Back in Genesis 14, we read about Lot, who was down in Sodom, Abraham's nephew. Lot, or Abraham is there again, in, in, in modern Israel, we know that Lot, along with Sodom and other kings, are taken into captivity by kings from the north. Abraham and 300 volunteers, 318 volunteers from his house say, let's go rescue Lot. They go up and they overthrow these kings and they deliver Lot and all of the people, the king of Sodom being amongst them. And then the king of Sodom is standing with these other kings. And then in verse 18 of Genesis 14, it says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And, God, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tithe of all. That's all we read about Melchizedek. He just shows up. He is the king of, again, Melchizedek means righteousness. He's the king of Salem or Jerusalem at that time, which means peace. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of priest or the king of peace. And he's, again, the priest of God most high. And Abraham brings a tithe to him. I'll bring this back here in a second. Meanwhile, the king of Sodom sees all this happen. He even sees them make, take communion 2,000 years before Christ comes and institutes communion of remembrance of what Jesus has done. And then the king of Sodom says, hey, take some of this money for yourself. And Abraham says, I don't even want a, a thread of a sandal strap from you. The king of Sodom will not say I made Abraham rich. He goes, I'm not even bringing a thread of your theology, your doctrine into to my camp. And sadly, the king of Sodom saw Melchizedek and Abraham take communion. You talk about a witness. He had one of the strongest witnesses of God Almighty in all of Scripture. And what did he do? Did he go repent? Did he call his people to repent? No, he went back to Sodom. And he went back to sodomy. And judgment came upon that group that was proud of their sin 
just a few chapters later, God always gives opportunity to repent. Now in Hebrews, again, it talks about Jesus being our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Quickly here, Hebrews 5, 4. And no man takes this honor to himself. It talks about God appointing priest. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so Christ did not glorify himself to be high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, out of Psalm 110, you see how important this passage is. And then in Hebrews 7, if you really want to learn more about Melchizedek, read Hebrews 7. The whole chapter is about him. Again, it talks about he's the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, meaning the king of peace. We have peace with God only through Jesus. It says he's without genealogy, without father, mother, beginning or end. He just appears on the scripture. And then again, he brings bread and wine to take a communion and then abraham ties to him and again the writer uses all this to show how it's a greater priesthood how really the levites tithe to melchizedek through abraham and jesus is of a higher priestly order than the levites being the priest according to the order of melchizedek now again quickly people say well who is this guy you know he just comes like all kinds of different thoughts on it there's some that say well we think that he was Shem, one of Noah's sons. A lot of the rabbis teach that. Others say that perhaps he's Job, as Job's one of the oldest books in the Bible and a righteous man. Others say, well, he must be a heavenly being. And then others say it was Jesus himself, an Old Testament appearance of the Lord coming to fellowship with Abraham. We know that they'd have that fellowship later in Genesis One thing we do know, though, is he just comes onto the scene, and we don't read of his genealogy at all, and we know God Almighty stepped into this world, the Son of God, to make that way of salvation for us. All of these things that blend together. Now, notice verse 5, and we'll finish this out here in the next few minutes. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Again, the Lord is at the right hand of the Lord. And all is it, it's all being penned by the Spirit of God. And he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. You know the day's coming when there's going to be kings that are executed? You're after, you do you ever have to repent? Lord, just execute that guy right now. You're like, oh, wait a minute. That's, that's, God's going to take care of that in his timing. Look, there are kings today that are storing up such great wrath as there's this great abandonment of the ordinances of God. We talk about all the time, God's merciful. But if you take his mercy for granted, you really want to push the limits, you're going to stack up wrath so high. There's so many leaders in our country that are stacking up the wrath of God right now. These wicked, you know what, laws and agendas that are being pushed upon our country. You see it all around the world. Look at it in the tribulation. It will be taken to a whole new level. They'll give allegiance to the Antichrist, the false prophet, the dragon. 
They'll refuse to repent. And then they'll gather together in Armageddon saying, we're going to fight God and we are going to defeat him. And guess what? He's going to come and he's going to execute kings, which means to crush, destroy, to strike through. And you better believe it will be a righteous and upright judgment. Verse 6, he shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. That's Jesus we're talking about here. Well, that's not the Jesus I subscribe to. He's a loving Jesus. He died for the sins of these men and they said, we'll have nothing to do with it. He says, then you're going to face my wrath. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Matthew 25, it talks about the nations being judged at his second coming. And those on the left-hand side who wanted nothing to do with them, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just as it says here, he'll judge the nations. He'll fail the places with dead bodies. Notice Isaiah 66, 24. It's prophetic about this time that's to come. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpse of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And we know the Lord uses that text to talk about hell. They'll be in a place of torment. That's where their dead bodies will be. And he shall execute the heads of many countries. Listen, this is reiterated many times. Every head of every country needs to read this passage and have the fear of God fall upon them. You'll be executed by God one day if you don't repent and stand for truth and righteousness. A lot of amens for that this morning. He shall execute the heads. Isn't that what Jesus said? Or what was prophesied in Genesis after man fell, Satan would bruise his heel, but what the Lord do crush the enemy's head. Notice Psalm 68, 21. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of those who still goes on in his trespasses. Notice, he still goes on in his trespasses. Doesn't want to repent. Thinks God won't judge me. I'll do what I want to do. I'll follow my heart. Though in my heart, I never seek after God. God says, listen, I laid down my life for you. But if you want to shun that, the day's coming. You'll be executed. And I'll honor your desire to have nothing to do with me. As you'll go forever in a place called hell. Well, that's not my Jesus. You better open up God's word and not make up your own Jesus because that Jesus will not save you. It's this Jesus who died for your sins and only this Jesus who can save your soul. Finally, verse seven, he shall drink the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. And again, this is a picture of his second coming. It's a picture of a military campaign with provisions all along the way. Everywhere they go, there's provision. There's a brook by the wayside giving strength. We know if you looked at it many times, he'll go to Basra. He'll go to Armageddon. And then he'll finally go to Jerusalem where the Mount of Olives will be split. And he'll trample these armies assembled to come against him. And he'll have every ounce of power. He's God Almighty, all-powerful God. All, every, he won't grow weary in it. Again, he shall lift up the head or he'll lift up his head. It's kind of a picture of the day of Gideon. When they went to the brook to drink, God selected those 300 men not to put their face in the water, but they looked up like this. In other words, I'm seeing you. I know what's going on. 
Nothing's escaping my attention. That's the case with God Almighty. Nothing escapes his attention. And that's why we're either damned to the uttermost or we can be saved to the uttermost through faith in the Jesus of the Bible. Let's stand up and we'll close here in prayer and worship of God. Heavenly Father, we bless you. We praise your name, God. We just thank you that you are so good. We thank you that you are king, you are priest. We thank you, you are our Lord. We thank you for your death, your resurrection. We thank you, Lord, you live to make intercession for us even right now. Oh, thank you, God. We thank you that you came and we thank you that you are coming again. We thank you that we can rest knowing, God, the day is coming when you will bring order to all of this chaos that has come from man's sin. I thank you, Lord, that day is coming when we'll no longer have a sin nature. But Lord, we will have resurrected bodies. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. God, bless your people here today. Pour out your strength and your power upon us, God. Let us be a people abounding in you. Let us be a people with a concern for these that are under judgment, knowing we need to be salt and light to them and share the gospel with this world that is fading quickly. And if you're here today and you haven't called upon Christ, you've heard the good news today. Yes, you've heard bad news. It's very bad. But hear this. You're in the valley of decision where you can come to the Lord and be a partaker of the good news. He's not willing that any would perish. Are you willing to let your soul perish? Humble your heart and call upon the Lord. Listen, you won't lose your life. You will gain it. And as we read there, whoever calls upon the Lord Jesus will be saved. Repent and come to him today. What he has is so much better than anything this world can muster up. We bless you. We praise you, Lord. Let us finish well, Lord, giving you praise, singing to you, God, in spirit and truth. Let's worship him as we close here.
Amen? Well, I pray you have a, a blessed and wonderful day in the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage others, and again, God bless you.